It's the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. I'm Crispin Schroeder. Today on the podcast, we have part three of our series on the Gospel of John. Today's message is entitled, Make Way for the King. Today we're going to be looking at the ministry of John the Baptist, the part that he plays in announcing the arrival of the Messiah. Speaking of looking into the Bible, uh, in a few weeks, in January, we are going to offer a new class called How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, based on the book by the same name by Gordon Fee, uh, one of the leading Bible scholars out there. We have the book available at the church right now, or you can pick it up online if you want to get a head start on the course, but we'll have more details about that coming up in the future. For now, let's head to the talk. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. Uh, now, now, this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent the priests and the Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. Then they asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us the answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent to question him and questioned him, why then do you baptize if you're not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, said John. But, but among you stands one who, do you not, who, who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the throngs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side of Jordan, where John was baptizing.
So we keep waiting, waiting on the world to change. Now, John Mayer wrote this song a few years ago trying to express the frustration of a lot of folks uh, in, in the younger generations that are getting disillusioned with the fact that, that the world that they may inherit might not be uh, as full of opportunities as perhaps their parents or their grandparents. And his frustration is that, that we, we want change, but we feel powerless. We feel like we can't bring change. So we're just waiting. Now, I, I started off with these, these, um, <clears throat> uh, this song by John Mayer because I, I believe it at least catches in part some of the feeling of those who were living in first century Palestine uh, at the time that this text that was read by Josh uh, occurred. If you were in Palestine in the first century and you were anything but the religious elite or, or those in the government of Rome or perhaps tax collectors, your existence would be have been just a, a case of just trying to survive without getting crushed. The Roman Empire, we, we have heard reports of of how they squished people underneath their foot without a second thought. There was corruption in the government. There was those who were opportunistic, who were selling out uh, their, fellow, uh, their fellow citizens to get ahead. And most people that would have been just regular people were just trying to get by without getting stepped on. It was hard. And they were waiting for the world to change. But unlike John Mayer, and, and maybe some of those today who might find themselves protesting uh, Occupy Wall Street. I did an Occupy Abita Springs rally the other day. <laughs> it didn't go very far. But, uh, <laughs> but unlike some who may be protesting nowadays, the hope of the people of Israel was not just that the winds of change would blow in a favorable direction. Their hope was actually tied into the prophecies of the Old Testament. They were actually waiting for a specific person who would bring change. Now, there were three characters that they were waiting for, um, and, and, and some of them saw this as, as really maybe attributes of one character, but there were three distinct people that were prophesied about in the Old Testament on which a hope grew around that perhaps when these people come, there will be change. The first was Elijah. You can find a prophecy in Malachi 4, verse 5, that said Elijah would come before the day of the Lord. Elijah would have a ministry to turn the hearts of the fathers towards the sons and the sons toward their fathers, and, and he would do amazing things. Now, if, if you've never read the Old Testament, Elijah was a prophet from the Old Testament, and he did like amazing things. One, one of the most amazing prophets in the Old Testament, he called down fire from heaven and confronted Jezebel and really turned the heart of a nation back to God. But Elijah, it's interesting, at the end of his ministry, he didn't die. He just got a ticket out of here. He rode away on a chariot of fire and, you know, just express ticket to heaven. So there was this, this thought that Elijah would come back like that and, and would do miracles again and turn the heart of the nation back to God. There was also a prophecy in Deuteronomy that God would send somebody like Moses now, what, it, what was Moses' ministry? What did he do? He was a deliverer. He confronted those who enslaved the people of God, and he did miracles on behalf of God and, and, and set them free. And so Moses was this 
you know, Moses was the one God used to bring about the exodus. So there was this hope for somebody like Moses that had been prophesied about. And then finally, there was the Messiah. The greatest hope that the people of Israel had was for the coming of the Messiah, the king from the house of David, the king who would overthrow all injustice and rule over Israel, and perhaps the world too. So, you know, last week I said something. When we read the Bible, we need to learn to read it with first century eyes and and, and 21st century questions. We don't need to look at this like, oh, okay, you know, Elijah, Moses, dead. No, no. when, When we see these words pop up in the text, it's very much a tie to the old story. For hundreds of years, there had been this hope simmering that no matter how bad it got, God would remember them just like he remembered them in Egypt. Send a deliverer. Send a Messiah. Send somebody who would set things right. Now, I got a, today, we got a map. This is for Judy, because Judy likes maps. We have a map. We have a map. Uh, I probably need a, a map with bigger words on it, but uh, this is a map of, of the world uh, of first century uh, Palestine. Here's a place called Bethany beyond the Jordan. That, that passage that Josh read, it said, and all these things occurred at Bethany beyond the Jordan. That's this place. This is, you'll notice this dot, it's not located near any of the other dots. It's kind of out here by itself. Bethany beyond the Jordan was out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it, it's kind of uh, like where Beth and Terry live, right? Uh, <laughs> now, this dot right here is Jerusalem. And so, you know, here, here's the uh, little thing here. If, if you uh, try to figure out how far it is, it's about 20 miles as the crow flies. But just to give you a little idea of the, of the topography here, this is mountains. Jerusalem is a, is a mountain city, and this is middle of nowhere desert. There's still some mountains out here, but this is down by the river where it empties into the Dead Sea. So very arid wilderness ter- terrain. It's not the kind of place you would want to go hang out. But John the Baptist, starts his ministry out here in the middle of nowhere. Now, does it make sense if you're trying to start a movement that will make a difference to, to start something, I don't know, out in Tikva or Robert? or you know, Does that make sense to us? I mean, what's going on here? Why is John out in the middle of nowhere? Jerusalem, was the, that was the seat of religion. That's where the, the temple was. That's where the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests... That was the seat of power. The, that was the place of culture. That'd be like, you know, our modern day New York. This was the, the, the hub city for all of Israel. But John goes way out here. Now, it's, it only seems 20 miles, but, but if you were walking, it would take you a couple of days to get there. And, and most people, that's, that's how you got around in those days. It, it would be a very tough journey to get there. But John starts out in the wilderness. It's interesting. John wasn't actually the first guy to go out in the wilderness and start some kind of, of ministry. Uh, Josephus, the first century historian, actually records that there was at least six other people that started these big ministries out in the desert. Now, you might think, why the heck would you do the desert? Well, starting out in the desert was symbolic. It tied into the rich symbolism of the people of Israel. It, it said something to them. For the, for the Jewish people, the desert wasn't just like out in the middle of nowhere, like avoid it. The desert represented the Exodus story to them. It represented the time in their history where God intervened and set them free. The desert wilderness 
it, it, it symbolized the time of God's abundant provision for them. God fed them with manna. Their clothes lasted for 40 years. I wish I could do that around my house. It was the place where God set up his presence among them for the first time. And so if you were going to start a movement to turn the heart of Israel back to its God, you would do it not in the center of things. You'd do it in the desert. John goes out to the desert. And John, even though he's out in the middle of nowhere, and he starts this ministry baptizing people in the Jordan. John, John was an interesting character, by the way. He wore... Uh, Clothes made out of camel's hair and ate locust and honey. So uh, it seems like every, everything like they would tell you on like, this is how you start a ministry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> go to the big city, eat good food. You know, he like ignores all, throws it all out the window. He's eating locust and honeys and, and, and b- baptizing people in, in the River Jordan out in the middle of nowhere. But yet, with all that weirdness, people are coming from hundreds of miles around. From all over Israel, word gets out that God's doing something. And so finally, word, John's baptism movement out there in the desert, it finally makes enough waves that that the folks back in Jerusalem, they begin to hear about it. The religious elite, the ones who are in charge of religion, they start getting word. And so that's the context for these scriptures. They send somebody to go check out what John the Baptist is up to. And what do they ask him? Are you the Messiah? He says, look, right off the bat, I'm not the Messiah. Because other people had gone into the desert to start their Messiah ministry. But John's like, no, let me clear it up right off the bat. I'm not the Messiah. Well, are you the Elijah? Are you the Elijah guy? He says, no. What about the prophet, the one like Moses? Are, Are you that guy? No. And so they were puzzled. Well, What are we supposed to go back and tell Jerusalem about? I mean, if you're not trying to be one of these three characters, then what is this movement even about? Why are you even baptizing people in the river? And and John's answer to them is, is is a quote from a prophecy in Isaiah. He says, I'm a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You looking for someone? Oh, no, that's fine. I just didn't know if, the, if you thought somebody was, like, sick in here. I, <laughs> I was like, do we need to know if there's somebody, like, hurt in the back? That's all. I, was, I saw the outfit. Okay. <laughs> I would hope that they would have notified us by then. But um, where was I? Oh, preparing the way for the Lord. So John, John the Baptist, he says, that's, that's my whole thing. I'm, he, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the, the prophet like Moses. I'm simply here to point to the Messiah coming, to say, get ready, God's coming. Now, regardless of your politics in here, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or whether you view uh, President Obama favorably, I, I, I suspect that if we found out President Obama is going to be giving a speech on North New Hampshire here in three weeks. Any business in downtown Covington would take that seriously, right? I don't, I don't know if the, if the mayor of Covington was a Republican or Democrat, but if he was a Republican, it wouldn't matter because he'd be like, the president's coming to town. What would he be doing? He'd be making sure we had fresh flowers and the things outside. He'd be making sure that there was no graffiti, that, that everything was cleaned up. There's no grass growing up in the sidewalk. Every restaurant in town would want to make sure that they, you know, they're, they're going to be 
serving food just in case he stops by to have a burger at their restaurant. They want to make sure that everything is prepared. That was John's ministry. Get ready. The kingdom of God is here. It's coming. Are you going to be ready for it when it gets here? Or more importantly, are you going to be ready for the king when he gets here? How many of y'all like to go hear bands in concert? I like hearing a good band. Uh, seven years ago, I believe, I got to go see U2 in concert up at, uh, in New York. And I'd been wanting to see U2 for years, so I was like, I was giddy. I was like a little kid, you know. I, I'd been listening to all my U2 CDs, and I was, you know, I was going to join in every song. And I get the, the concert was at the Meadowlands where the New York Giants play. And uh, Paul, our bass player who's from New York, told us to pray for the New York Giants today since the Saints aren't playing. So let's, let's pause. No. Um, but I get there, and, and the bummer is that U2 doesn't start the show. They've got an opening band, and the opening band was a band called Kings of Leon. Anybody heard of them? Okay. You know, I, I, I didn't, hadn't heard of them before I went to the show. And Kings of Leon get on, and it was horrible. I mean, I did not want to go out and buy a Kings of Leon CD afterwards. It just sounded like noise. It was just like, ah, when is this going to be over? I want to hear U2. Well, you know, I heard something from a sound guy friend of mine. He said that a lot of times when one of these national acts come through, um, they, they get like the, the six-hour sound check during the day, and the opening band doesn't get any sound check. And then when it comes time for the opening band to play, they don't get access to all the, you know, processors and things that, that really make the sound pop. They, they're kind of like running with a board like us, and uh, <laughs> they don't have the lights and all that stuff. So, and, and that's what had happened with Kings of Leon. I, I, I actually listened to an album from them, uh, you know, about a year later. I was like, wow, these guys are actually pretty good. I wouldn't have known that by the concert. Why does, why does a band like U2 or any other national act, why would they do that to their opening band, make them suffer through? Because they don't want to be upstaged, right? What would it, what would it mean for U2 if, if I went to that concert to hear them and the opening band was so amazing? I'm like, dude, U2 is good, but this opening band, they were just amazing. <laughs> they kind of want to make sure that doesn't happen. And I suspect one reason they do that is because U2... Early on in their career, probably 30 years ago, they were probably an opening band before, and they know what opening bands think like. I was in a band one time called Mary's Den, and we had a, a, you know, typically we would play gigs of 50 to 100 people, but on occasions, we got invited to play for more national acts, you know, where we would be in a, a place of a couple of thousand people. And so when we got the invitation to do that, Boy, we started practicing. We got all our songs down just right. We came up with new versions, and we had all this stuff working in our mind. We could see the big picture. But you know what? We actually thought of ourselves as competition with the, op- with, with the main band. We are like, man, we're going to get out there, and we're going to play so good that people are going to forget about the main band altogether. They're going to hear us, and they're going to go, that band is amazing. Now, I have to say, that's a really lousy attitude for an opening band to have. And that's the reason why opening bands don't get the lights and don't get the sound, because they should be in a supportive role. I I heard a guy talk years ago about going to see James Taylor in concert. He said, James Taylor had the most amazing open band. So the band was talented musically and everything, but 
he said you could tell they were fans of James Taylor. Like they were excited to be there. They were just happy to get to open for James Taylor. And they kept going on about how much they respected him as a songwriter and all this stuff. And they, at one point they even covered a James Taylor song. And so when their act was over, James Taylor comes out there and he begins playing. He plays, you know, half of his set, just acoustic guitar. And then he invites the opening band out and they backed him up. That's what you want in an opening band. That's John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a good opening band. He's not like me when I was an opening band. (laughs) He's not saying, oh, this is my shot for glory. I'm going to get some fans. John the Baptist is saying, I am here to prepare the way for somebody else. I embrace that. I'm a big fan of God. I'm a big fan of Jesus. You can't wait till he gets here. It's going to be amazing. You better get ready. Jesus is coming. Well, he didn't say Jesus. He said the Messiah. Actually, he goes on in there to say, the Messiah is among you and you don't even know it. It's gonna, you're going to know it here pretty soon. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not Elijah. I'm not a prophet. I'm a voice crying out, prepare the way of the Lord. It, it, it's interesting when I look at this response by John, I'm thinking it's so different from the way most people would respond I mean, everything in our world tells us when business is good, when people are coming, when the church has more people coming, that's the moment you, you seize on the momentum. You, you start new initiatives. You expand. You try to get a new audience. John the Baptist, at the height of his ministry, when things are going great, when he's got a reputation where people are coming, even from Jerusalem, to check him out, he says, I'm not the guy. Not Elijah. Not the prophet. Not the Messiah, just here to prepare the way for the king. That shows both great leadership and tremendous humility. I think John is a great example of what it means to live in the kingdom of God. See, that's uncommon. John's acting like a different kind of person than most people we, most people we see. You know, I've been to, uh, in, in my years in uh, church i've been to conferences and stuff and they tell you things about church church growth they say you know hey if you want to grow your church you got to have good worship good children's ministry good small groups and if you follow these steps then you're going to have a church of thousands of people and it's it's all kind of based on like trying to figure out how to get more people in but the ministry of john it takes place in the most obscure place And even when people start showing up, he's like, dude, I'm not the guy. I'm just temporary. I'm just preparing the way. That's uncommon. It's as if he's living already in a different kingdom. He's already living by a different set of rules. Actually, a few years down the road, Jesus' ministry gets popular and all of a sudden people start following Jesus more than they're following John the Baptist. And some of John the Baptist's disciples, they start going, What's up with Jesus? He's taking all our people. Like we used to be like we used to be like the happening thing, John. And John says, He must increase. I must decrease. That's part of the thing. That's why I'm here. Not so that people become not so that I become famous and not so that people recognize me and that, that we get all these accolades, but so that when the king shows up, then that my job is coming to an end. That's crazy. I mean, we don't see people in Christianity behave like that much these days. But that's the way we see 
John the Baptist. Actually, the Apostle Paul, the New Testament, most of the books written in the New Testament were written by Paul. Ephesians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians. All these were letters to churches that he planted. And you realize John, I mean, Paul, George and Ringo, uh, (laughs) Paul, most of the churches he planted, he didn't spend more than two years at any of them except maybe Ephesus. I mean, if I was Paul, we're hitting the two-year mark here shortly. It'd be like, I'm, I'm done. See you later, guys. I hope you, you figure this thing out. That doesn't make sense the way we tend to think about church these days. Like, what? <laughs> I love what, what Paul says in Galatians uh, 4.19. He says, he's talking to the church in Galatia. He says, I, I labor with birth pains until now that Christ would be formed in you. See, the truth is, in our world, we're not really about that kind of mentality much. Everything in our world wants to get people to become dependent on us. You know, farmers in this country, uh, there's several companies now that are manufacturing genetically modified seeds. And they're giving them out to farmers. That, but they say, the, the only catch is, you've got to give us your old seeds. We'll give you these new ones. They're, they're better. They, and so a lot of these farmers, most all of them, have bought into this thing. And the seeds produce great, but there's only a problem. They have a termination gene in them, which means they won't bear fruit beyond the first season. They, you can't, you've got to keep coming back to that company to get your seeds. You become dependent on them for your livelihood. We see this with the government, too, that many of the initiatives by the government to, that, that maybe have been created to help people, they, they actually make people dependent on the government. And we see systematic welfare and, and things like that, programs that were meant to help people, that actually people become dependent on them. And we see this even in the church many times. I know, I look around this room, and I know a lot of you, you the reason you're here is because you've been touched by God, and you, you love God. God's done things in your life, and, and you want other people to experience what you've experienced, the, the healing, the, the, the freedom of knowing Christ. But we got to watch out because sometimes we can, uh, we can take burdens on us that we weren't meant to take, and we can, can make it about us. And, you know, it actually, actually kind of feels good to, to, to take care of this person or that person. You know, I, I kind of like the way it feels. I'm helping them out. and I, It feels nice to be needed. I, I kind of like it that they can call me up. You call me up anytime. I'll carry your burdens. You, you ever see that movie, What About Bob, Bill Murray? That's a great movie. Uh, but Bill Murray plays this, this character that's, uh, you know, kind of neurotic, OCD, got all like every kind of issue you can think of. But his, his psychiatrist is played by Richard Dreyfuss, and, and uh, he's a famous psychiatrist. But Bob somehow gets a hold of his phone number and weasels his way into their vacation. It's because Bob has become codependent on this, like, you are the answer to all my problems. And, you know, he finds out throughout the movie that really he's not the answer. And, you know, I'm not going to reenact it here. But I think that that's what many of us do when we sincerely want to help people. Instead of actually helping them by, like John the Baptist did, by pointing them to God, we take their burdens on. We become codependent. It does something for us. It makes us feel you know, good about ourselves. But you know, even Jesus, even in the ministry of Jesus, which we're going to get to at the, at the end of, of, 
the book of John sometime down the road, so I, I'll go ahead and say it today. But Jesus tells his disciples, it's good that I'm leaving you. He, it's at the end of his ministry. He's going back to heaven. It's good that I leave you because I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is going to guide you into all truth, going to lead you in the way that you should go. Even Jesus didn't want the disciples to be dependent on him as an external person. He wanted them to learn to live from the life of God on the inside. So we see the ministry, whether it's Jesus or Paul or John the Baptist, it's always a ministry that's pointing to Jesus as the Messiah, always pointing to the life of God. It's not one that just fosters a codependence, but actually enables people to freely connect with their God and King. So I want, to look, I want to close today by looking at five temptations that can keep us from the kind of kingdom life that we see as evidenced in John the Baptist. First one is the messianic complex. I can save you. I'm here to save you. And a lot of people get this complex, but I think, I think pastors and people in ministry, we're probably uh, really... Uh, it's a weakness for a lot of people. A lot of people, you get into ministry because you want to help people. But Eugene Peterson, uh, who, who's an author, he's, he's written several books, but most famously, The Message Translation of the Bible. He uh, came out with a, a book this last year, a great book I've been reading called The Pastor, a memoir. He was a pastor for 30 or so years up in Baltimore, Maryland. And he talks about a time in his ministry where there was a, a psychiatrist who called Eugene Peterson and about 14 other pastors up and asked them if they would like to be a part of a, a mentoring, you know, teaching program where the, the psychiatrist would train them in ways of diagnosing certain issues from depression to anxiety disorders, addictive issues, and it would be a two-year thing. And so Eugene Peterson and all these other pastors, they, they would get together every Tuesday and the psychiatrist would talk to him for an hour and a half, and then they would have kind of group therapy among the pastors for another hour and a half. And Peterson writes how this was an amazing time in his life because he started dealing with a lot of the junk on the inside that uh, he didn't even realize was there and, and started kind of uh, getting free from some of that stuff. And he also was learning so much about these issues that he actually at one point thought about quitting being a pastor altogether to just become a licensed uh, therapist. But it's interesting what he writes about it. He says, incrementally, without noticing what I was doing, I had been shifting from being a pastor, dealing with God in people's lives, to treating them as persons dealing with problems in their lives. I was not being their pastor. I could have helped and still been their pastor, but by reducing them to problems to be fixed, I omitted the biggest thing of all in their lives, God and their souls. And the biggest thing in my life, my vocation as a pastor, it was on Tuesdays, those meetings with the psychiatrist, that I realized in myself a latent messianic complex, which given free reign would have obscured the very nature of my congregation by redefining it as simply a gathering of men and women who I was in charge of helping with their problems. The messianic virus, which can so easily decimate the pastoral vocation once it finds a host, me, is hard to get rid of. As with the common cold, there doesn't seem to be any sure cure prevention or medicines. The best you can do is to try to stay healthy on a decent diet and plenty of exercise and worship with the people of God. 
See, Peterson began to realize as a pastor that there was this, this thing inside him that he liked to be needed by people. He liked, he liked the idea of counseling because it was a lot easier than pastoring, in a sense, because the stuff he'd learned from the psychiatrist, it's you diagnose the problem, you offer solutions, you're done. And you can kind of at least go home at the end of the day saying, oh, I diagnosed something, I gave some things, and, and, and I'm done. Pastoral ministry is not quite as defined as that. I remember talking to Dan Nitschke when we were remodeling my garage. I was like, at the end of the day, we had a wall up. And I'm like, wow, this construction stuff's pretty cool. You can, at the end of the day, you can look back and, and see what you've done. I said, sometimes pastoring, I look back at a week and, and I try to figure out what really happened. <laughs> what is the progress here? Because the work of God is, is much more mysterious. Eugene Peterson said that when he, he almost stepped away to become a therapist, but he realized his main job was not to see people as problems, but to see broken people and lead them into worship of God, to see them actually as people created in the image of God and to lead them to Jesus. But you aren't going to do that as long as you've got a messianic complex. Second thing that stands in our way of living as, in kingdom people as John the Baptist is our temptation of using people for a means to our end. This is the way of the world that we live in. If you want something, you, you just use whoever you need to, to, to get to your goal. You climb the corporate ladder and you step on as many people as you need to to get to the top. John the Baptist, he didn't see the people coming out to him as, as a means to his end. <laughs> he pointed them towards Jesus. John the Baptist could have capitalized on, his mid, on, on this whole movement. He could have said, we're going to be the Occupy Jerusalem movement. Meet me in Jerusalem. But he didn't. He didn't see people as a means to his end. But God as a means, as an end to the people. Maybe that was worded wrong. He pointed them to the Lord. Next is the temptation of power. See, the Pharisees, one reason they come... Actually, you can read Matthew chapter 3 and you get a little bit different uh, take on this scene that was going on that that we looked at with John the Baptist. Matthew 3 records that the Pharisees sent... that They came down there to check on uh, John the Baptist and... John the Baptist says, why do you come down here, you bunch of snakes? Why do you think you can just jump in the water and pretend like, oh, I'm getting baptized by John the Baptist? Why do you come down here to go through the motions of this? Why don't you bear fruit keeping with repentance? See, John knew that the the Pharisees, they weren't really interested in changing their life. If they got baptized by John, it was just to put on a show to say, oh, we approve of you, John the Baptist. You've got our blessing. And John is saying, no, you've got to give up your power and submit yourself to the king of kings. John says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Our temptation many times is towards power, to use power for our own prominence, our own possession. Jesus says, no, you, I mean, John says, no, you submit to the Messiah. Get ready for God to rule. There's the temptation of fame. What do you do when you succeed? Have you ever noticed in your own life that it's not the times when things are at their bottom that you do stupid things? It's sometimes when 
things are going great? Is anybody else? Is it just me? You know, like, like when, when you're struggling to, you know, pay the bills and stuff, that's the time maybe you get the closest to God. But then all of a sudden, you know, the kids start obeying you, the car's paid off, the, the house, everything's going good, everybody's healthy. It's like, ah, you know, and sometimes the things that test us the most is success. What we see John the Baptist, when he succeeds in ministry, when things are at their best, he doesn't fall into the temptation of fame. What do we do when things go good? He kept pointing to Jesus. And finally, the last one is the temptation of greed. Now, I don't just mean greed in a, in a, in a monetary sense, but the, this always wanting more. I've been around a lot of pastors over the years, and, and whether they're pastors of, of 100-member churches or you know, 1,000 or 5,000-member churches, I, I see with so many people, there's, there's this, man, if we just got some more people here, <laughs> if we just got a few more people, we could do some more things, and they get some more people. Oh, if we just got a few more people. But there's this perpetual distraction from what God's put right in front of their face. It's a temptation to always be looking for more. I think what we see in the life of John the Baptist is he, he, he's not, at the height of his ministry, he's not looking for more. The only more that he needs is the kingdom of God. I think we need to ask ourselves, are, are, are we consistently stuck in the cycle of, of greed, not just with our money, but are we ever content with what God puts in front of us? Are we content to, to, to give what, whatever's right in our laps, give it our all as it's from God? Or are we always looking to, oh, if I just got a little bit more of this, then I could really be used by God. Or if we just got a little bit more. These are temptations to keep us out of the kingdom of God from, from operating in that reality. See, I believe just as John the Baptist God has called us as a group of people to be a people that when people see us, that they would actually see that, that, that we're living in a completely different way from the world around us. Though the people in, in our business world are always trying to step on each other and, and use each other and, 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 and make their situations work to their advantage, that we're operating in a different spirit. Though the rest of the world's getting carried away with greed, that, that, that we're not getting caught up in that. We're not just making it about us. We're always looking to the purposes of God. Like John the Baptist, that we could live lives that point to Jesus. So this morning, how do we respond to the message of John the Baptist? You know, the way they responded to it is as recorded in Matthew. They came down to the river, they confessed their sins, and they were baptized. They just said, look, this is where I'm at. This is how I've screwed it up. This is where I've let things stand between me and God's purposes. Baptism was just a symbol of, of turning their lives over to God's purposes. So I've got a big tank of water that we're going to wheel right out here. And, and I'm just kidding. But today, I think the question that we need to ask is, what, what's standing in the way of the king being the king in my heart today? Is it my own worries? 
Is it my own reputation? Is it my own clinging to, my, to, to whatever success that I've had? Can we submit those things before the king today? Can we prepare the way for God to come in? Why don't you stand? Lord, this morning we hear the words of John the Baptist afresh to us this day. God, I pray that, Holy Spirit, that you would reveal to us anything that needs to be brought low in our lives. God, anything that we've made an idol. Lord, that you would teach us what it means to live as kingdom people. God, I pray for this group of people, North Shore Vineyard, that... Lord, we truly would be a signpost pointing to you, Lord, that when people see us, they would see a group of people that live a qualitatively different life. Show us where we need to turn to you, God. Show us where we need to turn to you. Lord, we ask that you would be the king of our hearts, Lord of everything we have, everything we are. In Jesus' name, amen.